0: This is Love Your Work. On this show, we help you make it as a creative entrepreneur. I'm David Kadavy from Love Your Work headquarters in Colombia. Yes, the country. I have interviewed titans of industry like Steve Case. I've interviewed best-selling authors like Seth Godin and James Altucher. I've interviewed experts on behavioral science, creators from dancers to a chef to a Hollywood set designer, and visionaries on the cutting edge of creative monetization, whether that is self-publishing or blockchain technology. And from these conversations, I pull out lessons to share with you on how you can find your unique voice as a creative entrepreneur, how you can nail the right mindset to succeed, and how you can be the first to capitalize on new opportunities to make a living making your art. If you are new here, welcome. Again, I'm David Kadavy. If you want to join us here and Love Your Work every Thursday, please hit subscribe on your podcast app and get my free creative productivity toolkit. Sign up at cadavy.net slash tools. In a world where you can publish your creative work to more people than ever, it's very easy to lose sight of why we create in the first place. And interestingly, if you're dead set on your work reaching a lot of people, you're actually going to lose touch with that special something that makes your work resonate with others in the first place. Srini Rao, our guest today, is host of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast and author of the new book, Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. And an audience of one, Srini gives you the tools and encouragement you need to stop focusing on external validation and to reconnect with your creative spark. In this conversation today, we're going to talk about how do you follow up a success to reconnect with creativity for its own sake. We're going to hear about how Srini's self-published book hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, and we'll hear about how he has struggled after that event to reconnect with the true source of creative work that resonates with others. Also, how do you ask questions that get right to a great story? Srini asks great questions on his podcast, The Unmistakable Creative. In fact, I was on there recently and he got stories out of me that I had never told before. So I loved digging into his questioning style. I think that his thoughts on this could be as useful for a first date as they are for a podcast interview. And what has Srini learned from hosting more than 700 podcast interviews? he'll break down the best tips and ways of thinking that he's gleaned from creators, bank robbers, drug dealers, performance psychologists, and more. And I realize it's been a very long time since I asked for reviews of the show. Actually, I recently got a one-star review, and uh, the person said that I was the worst interviewer of all time. Um, And I don't know how that person knows that. I don't know how they have listened to all interviewers that have ever existed and determined that I'm the worst ever. But in any case, I still got useful feedback from that review. So if you agree with that person, you're probably not listening. Um, But in any case, I would love to get your feedback on the show, what you love, what you hate. And I would love that in a form of a review. So if you're already subscribed, if you don't feel ready financially to support the show on Patreon, this is also another great way to help out at no cost. Just write a review. So if you're on the Apple Podcast app, just go to Love Your Work and scroll down and tap on Write a Review. Otherwise, go to kadavy.net slash review. That will take you straight to Apple Podcasts where you can write a review. And if you're not sure what to say, you can just click on a star rating. You can leave it at that. It takes two seconds. Again, that is kadavy.net slash review. I'm glad Every Plate is sponsoring the show. Every Plate is the healthier alternative to takeout or delivery. And it's cheaper too. Every plate recipes come together in about 30 minutes, which is way faster than a trip to the grocery store. They do the meal planning, the shopping, the prepping of ingredients. It takes all of the time consuming and mental energy consuming guesswork out of cooking. And every plate's chef designed meals are just $4.99 per serving. That's like a cup of coffee. For 50% off your first box of every plate, go to everyplate.com and enter Love Your Work. That's 50% off your first box of EveryPlate at everyplate.com with the promo code LOVEYOURWORK. And I am really thrilled to have Srini Rao on the show. Here is Srini. Okay, I'm here with Srini Rao from the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. And Srini, uh, I'm not gonna ask the same questions that you ask When you start your interviews, but I really love your opening questions. You ask things like, where did you grow up? Uh, What, what, what did your parents do? How did that affect your, uh, your path as a creator? And that really gets your conversations off to a really good start. And I'm curious, where did you uh, get the idea to start asking questions such as that? Uh, (laughs) And when did, when did that, when did that begin?
1: Yeah, you know it, it's interesting. Um, so one of the, the things that a uh, business partner who who I've actually just parted ways with just a week ago on on amicable terms he's still a good friend. We just kind of reached a point where it was just time for us to, to uh, you know move apart. But he had been listening very closely, and he said, "Man, he said you get these just beautiful nuggets out of people." But he said it it takes twenty minutes to get to that, and the mm-hmm. richest and deepest part of the conversation is 20 minutes in, he said, I think you can get there faster. And I said, how? He said, by changing the opening question. And so I decided to give it a try to see what would happen. And it was really interesting to see the first person's reaction because they they thought it's so different than how you would start a conversation with somebody you've mm-hmm. never spoken to before. And uh, you know, usually the first question is, first response is nobody's ever asked me that before, which is always a good sign. But part of the reason for that And what I started to realize after doing it hundreds of times was that you can't answer those questions without telling a story and human beings are hardwired to listen to stories. And the unmistakable creative is very story driven. We're not about tactics or, or you know, increasing the ROI of your business or whatever or things like that. We are very much in the business of telling really interesting stories. And as a result, you get these really fascinating, uh, thought-provoking and insightful nuggets out of people. And immediately what happens is that their guard comes down because they've shared something very vulnerable. They've shared something that's personal. They've shared something that's deep. And as a result, you end up having a very, very intimate conversation in which you're able to get them to talk about things that they've never talked about before. And I said this to uh, one of the people at Creative Live. I said, if you can get your guest to feel something, then you are going to inevitably invoke an emotional response in the people who are listening. So Mm -hmm. really, more than anything, it's driven by the desire to tell compelling stories. And the thing is that human beings are hardwired to listen to stories. And as you said, you know, the moment you ask that question you can't stop listening because now somebody is telling a story and you're like okay now i need to figure out where this is going to end
0: yeah it's funny i i have always felt like oh i would feel so strange asking such a a personal and pointed question right off from the beginning but it seems to work very well i mean i i know i i certainly try to avoid you know tell me about yourself and i also try to avoid the the just simple welcome back and forth thing that happens uh, during the beginning of, of of a lot of conversations. Uh, so I you know, I might try this sometime. Well, you know what it is, is
1: that what ends up happening for many people is that you effectively, you know, tell me about yourself is a terrible question. I mean, you would never ask a first date that either, right? It would just be a terrible date it happens. Uh, if, if you went there. But uh, what's, what's interesting about that, these types of questions is that they're not resume questions. Whereas if you listen to the opening of most interviews, particularly when people are interviewing entrepreneurs, It's almost like they're just doing a job interview saying, tell me about your career. And my business, my, my, you know, former business partner, Brian, said that you're going to get to their work eventually. But you don't want the first five minutes of the uh, interview to feel like a pitch for who they are in their work, because it's almost like having them read their resume, just kind of morphing it into some uh, story form for a podcast. And I, I just don't think that that's very entertaining.
0: Hmm. Well, I'm not going to ask you uh, what group you were in in high school, because <laughs> people can find that out yeah. uh, by listening to the Unmistakable Creative, a recent interview of you. So I'll just go ahead and ask you one of your your own canned questions. Uh, what, what did your parents do? Uh, and, and how did that affect your uh, career as a creator?
1: So, my dad is a uh, college professor. Um, We basically, we started in Australia in 1978, where he uh, was doing a a PhD. And my mom and I came three months after he got there. Then we left, then we moved to Canada, uh, where he also did postdoctoral work. And then we spent seven years in Texas. And then finally, he got a job uh, as a professor at the University of California, Riverside. Uh, my mom has been a health worker for uh, various counties. She's worked in medical clinics, she's worked in dental offices, and now she works as a health worker for Riverside County, uh, teaching breastfeeding. As far as careers impacting me, I think that more than anything, my parents informed what I knew I didn't wanna do. Uh, I saw my dad's career and I just, when I saw academia, I saw how long it took for him to get to a point of, of stability. I saw that there would always be a cap. Although he lives a really good life now, uh, I, I, you know, I honestly at moments think that okay, maybe there there is some some validity to him. But I, I think the the thing that came from having parents who had careers like this, particularly my dad, is that I understood that things were going to take a long time, and I was taught to persist at things for a really long time because I saw it firsthand. I saw my dad spend years up until he got a teaching position, and when it finally did work out for him, it worked out. Uh, you know, wonderfully. And I think the other thing is because of the fact that I'm Indian, I also had this sort of discipline that w- I was brought up with. You know, Nobody put our report cards on the fridge when we brought straight A's home from school. It was kind of just, well, yeah, of course you brought straight A's home from school. If we didn't bring straight A's from h- home from school, hmm. the question was why? What did you do wrong? Why did you not study? Uh, so in that sense, I think that that was my dad's influence. And neither of them were creatives. Uh, but I just more and more what I kept seeing, I think as I've gotten older and older and, and, you know, became a surfer, snowboarder, it it was a very weird thing, but I I felt in so many ways. And I said this in audience of one that at moments I felt like God made a sorting error, uh, by putting me with my family, because it's not that they're not creative, but we have really, really different values. And I knew that I didn't want to live the life that they live. And so in that sense, I think that In one way, what my parents did informed the early part of my career because I just did what I thought uh, would work, what was expected. I chose what was safe, secure, and stable. And the weird thing is, despite choosing what was safe, secure, and stable, that didn't turn out to be the case for me in those situations because I got fired from all my jobs. I don't Mm. think there was this understanding of, you know, do something you're passionate about. Do something that you love. And I, I remember reading a, a piece on Medium that you wrote about the fact that you wouldn't recommend, uh, living this freelance life to anybody. I never forgot that piece. It really stuck with me. Oh, and, uh, and, and I think about it at moments and, and sometimes I think, yeah, maybe there is something, some truth to that is that maybe this, this isn't something that a lot of people should do. Uh, but I think that they're sort of uh, the fact that they're immigrants really more than anything else uh, created this sort of work ethic and this drive. And then this other sense that they struggled, they really went through a lot of hard times to give us everything. And, and it would be irresponsible to piss away all the hard work that they did to give us this golden opportunity. But at the same time, you also realize that, wait a minute, your parents aren't the ones who are going to live with the consequences, uh, of the choices that you make with your life, your career, and just about every other aspect mm-hmm. of your life. So, and that's, as I, I would say, it's, 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 I think their influences have been indirect, but more than anything, I I think they've informed what I've chosen not to do more than what I have done.
0: Right. And, you know, th- but they also began their careers in such a different Absolutely. world. Yeah. You know, you could, you could, you could do that. I, I, I really re- resonate a lot with what you're saying. You know, my, my, my father worked for the same company for, for 37 years, you know, very persistent and steady. And I think I learned a, a lot watching that, but it was, it was not the career that, that I wanted to have. But really today, um, how can you be guaranteed, uh, to have that kind of security anyway? Um, and and to, to what you said about not recommending this this profession, yeah, this is something that I, I still feel. And it's something some people will ask me sometimes, like, how do you know whether you should write a book? And I tell them, you know, because you have no choice. Uh-huh.
1: Uh, is that the way that you feel? I think to some degree, yes. I remember hearing this interview with Matt Damon and Sam Jones and the fact that, Matt Damon said that he had no pack no backup plan like that there was no plan b that this was the plan and you i think, mean goodwill hunting well goodwill hunting and and you know being an actor in general because oh, really? a lot of people yeah. don't know this but prior to goodwill hunting Matt Damon was very unknown but he'd already been around for 10 years and mm-hmm. the reason that he and Ben Affleck wrote Good Will Hunting was that they needed to create a job for themselves. They actually said the reason we wrote that movie was because we needed work and we figured, okay, if nobody's going to hire us, let's write our own movie and star in it. Uh, mm-hmm. But before that, nobody really knew who they were. Uh, and But the, the idea that there was no plan B, that there was no backup plan, that was really interesting to me because the, the thing about having a backup plan when you go into a creative career it's almost like the backup plan can become a self fulfilling prophecy, not because you 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 know don't intend to. And I'm not saying that you should do really stupid and risky things. I've seen a lot of people do things that don't make any sense, like quit jobs with no idea how they're going to make any money, and then finding themselves completely broke two months later. Uh, I, I think that there has to be some thought to how you go about this. I think that. The other part of it is, I, I, you say you, you don't have a choice. So I'm the person who's got fired from every job I ever had. To me, I, I felt like, yeah, I don't have a choice. Like, I have to figure out how to make this work because I did it the other way and it didn't work for me. Uh, although, funny enough, I think now I would be a much more valuable asset to any organization, given everything that I've done and learned from building Unmistakable Creative. I've gotten this crazy education that I think is, is probably unparalleled in terms of, of knowledge. Uh, I've like a, an encyclopedia's worth of information in my brain. but. I, I do think that it has to be one of those things where you are so deeply drawn and deeply compelled to do this thing that you just can't not do it.
0: Right. And I mean, I, I know I've heard your story about moving back in with your parents mm-hmm. at I think age 30 or something to start Unmistakable Creative or the the precursor to it, perhaps. Uh I mean, we can get into that. Yeah, and uh, at that point, you felt like you didn't have... Uh, Any other choice because you had gotten fired from everything or or, or was there an element of, well, I could go look
1: for more jobs, but I feel compelled to do this? Well, it's a combination of both. I did look for more jobs. Nobody hired me. Mm. Uh, I the, the entire time I was building Unmistakable Creative, people were const- Like I was trying to apply for jobs. And the, the problem was that we were reaching this point where resumes were becoming worthless. And the only thing I really had, and my resume was particularly worthless because I'd been fired from only jobs. So there's no reason I wanted to put that out to a potential employer. So my portfolio of work, uh, what I'd built at Unmistakable Creative, the blog I'd built and all this stuff had become... Basically, the equivalent of my resume. And I remember uh, going into a job interview and, and some guy asked, What is this? I was like, It's a body of work. And of course, this guy had no idea. This is a, a person who would basically spent his whole life working at a company. And he said, You know, when I asked about the corporate culture, he said, Yeah, when we say eight o'clock, we don't mean 8.15. And I thought, Okay, here is a guy whose entire world is dictated by following rules. Mine mm-hmm. isn't. Uh, I would not even. I'd be miserable here. And I, I, I kind of wish that I had the balls to just be completely honest in that interview and, and say to the guy, you know what, Chuck, I think I would fucking hate working with you, to be honest. I think we can conclude the interview right here. Just based on that comment alone, I can tell you that I'm not a good fit for you guys. Good luck with your hire. And what's interesting is the VP for, who was hiring for that position and the person they have hired all got fired three months after that. Uh, so it wasn't for a lack of, of trying, but it was becoming very clear that, okay, I've done it this way and it's not going the way I needed to. So why am I trying to do something and force fit something that clearly isn't working? I think I'm going to just cut off the possibility of ever going down that road. And yeah, you like you mentioned, I mean, there are a lot of sacrifices that came with it. I moved home. I lived at home until I was like 39 years old, which is ridiculous. Um, I, I decided not to pay off my student loan debt and... In some ways, you know, what I've always said is I think I've done far greater, I've done far more for society and for humanity by building unmistakable creative than I would have by paying off my debt. So if I had paid off my debt, some investment banker would have gotten a really big bonus. But the thing is, he's going to get that bonus whether I pay my debt or not, even though he's responsible for causing billions of dollars in losses. Uh, But that's a whole other aside. So I thought, all right, why am I stressing about paying my debt when? a CEO who is, you know, operating at losses is taking a $90 million bonus to hell with him, you know? Uh, so, you know, all that aside, I I think that I realized that I felt like I really didn't have another choice.
0: I didn't even know that student loans were something that you could, uh, that you could decide not to pay. I thought they were completely unforgivable for your entire life. They're
1: they're unforgivable, but I'm paying like the bare minimum. Oh, gotcha. Right. (laughs) Okay. And even Um, though they're unforgivable, there's, there's no way that we're getting out of this situation by people actually paying these things off. Like, it's just not going to, it's not economically possible for, here's what I don't think people realize, you know, you don't want to get me started on a rant on the education system, but it doesn't take an (laughs) economics degree or math degree to figure out that, hey, by the way, there's only so long that you can keep lending money out and not getting it back before there are systemic consequences. Like, any idiot could figure that out. I mean, we saw it with the housing bubble. So the fact that people think that we're going to get out of our student loan debt crisis by all these students suddenly paying off their debt. So think about what's happening because of student loan debt, the student loan debt. People take jobs that they're underqualified for. They don't start businesses. They don't buy houses. They don't contribute to the economy because all Mm -hmm. they do is pay off their debt. I just interviewed a presidential candidate and he said that he described his law school loans as his second mistress because he said he felt like he was sending a check to another family every month. And there's no way that, like, I, I don't know what world is, is going to exist where every student who owes all this money is suddenly going to be able to pay it back unless they all win the lottery or their parents all die at the same time and they get mm-hmm. to cash in on life insurance policies. And and that's morbid to think. You're
0: the, pre- the precursor to unmistakable Creative. I believe it was called Blogcast FM. Yes. Uh, before, correct? Yes, it was. Uh, So when you went through that branding, uh, rebranding to Unmistakable Creative, was that a very difficult decision for you to make at that time?
1: No, not really. Uh, I wasn't particularly attached to the Blogcast FM brand, particularly because it wasn't a brand. What was interesting is we had really good content, but we didn't have a very clear identity of who we were and what we stood for. It was, hey, this is the interview podcast for bloggers. And the thing that was really becoming clearer and clearer at the end of 2013 is that we weren't just a podcast for bloggers. We just happened to interview people who had blogs. And our most popular interviews were the ones where people actually told interesting stories, not talked about how they started their blogs or increased traffic to their websites, even though that's where we started I think that more and more when you got to see that, Wow, these are some really fascinating people. That's what made the whole thing so much more interesting. So it wasn't a hard rebrand. I mean, it took a lot of work, but in terms of letting go of the old brand, it didn't take much convincing for me. I kind of saw that it would be a whole different ballgame if we got rid of it. We would be irrelevant yeah. right now, or been, we would have been out of business by now.
0: Yeah, and I love that you you did that. Most important, I I love that you started as Blogcast FM because I think that one thing that I see that holds a lot of people back in creative endeavors, and this is something that I've struggled with myself is not beginning because you don't feel like you got the positioning right. You don't feel like you've got figured out exactly what you're going to create. Whereas sometimes you can just create something and then what it's about starts to emerge. Is that kind of what happened?
1: Yeah, I I would say so. I think clarity comes from taking action, uh, particularly when you're unclear. Uh, Because if you do something, at least you get some feedback as to what works, what doesn't, what resonates, what doesn't. Uh, it's a really easy trap to fall into. And it it just turns into a form of of sophisticated procrastination. Uh, But it's really only when you start putting stuff out like I I, writing books is a perfect example of this. I I waited for years. And then finally, I thought, okay, well, nobody's gonna come and offer me a book deal to hell with this. I'm just gonna publish my own book. And it's funny, because my self published book was far more successful than my traditionally published books have been. So your self-published
0: book, uh, I believe it was uh, The Art of Being Unmistakable. That ended up becoming a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Yeah. Um, so how did that happen? And what did that do um, to your creative process having success like that? Did that make it difficult for you to reconnect Um I mean, it seems like the type of thing that might mess with your head a little
1: bit. Well, I, I know for a fact that you just went through this because somebody else who's a mutual friend of ours told me on Unmistakable Creative about it. Uh, oh, wow. So, and I don't remember who it was, but I'll, I'll, I'll have to go like, so yeah, it, it definitely did mess with my I head. i love to hear a bit. So, I, so, so the way it came about was I self-published this book thinking nothing of it, thinking, you know what, if we sell a couple hundred copies, I'll be really happy. And then I went and I looked in the, you know, uh, Amazon dashboard one day and I saw that I'd skyrocketed to, to the top of, of the, the Amazon, like had a thousand sales in one day. I don't know what it was. I looked at the rankings and I saw that I was ranking higher than the founder of Reddit and James Altucher and everybody else. And I thought, wait a minute, these guys are far more well known than I am. What just happened here? And then I, I tweeted about it and some guy replied back saying, Hey, you might want to thank Glenn Beck. He raved about your, your book on his show today. <laughs> And I didn't even know who Glenn Beck was at the time. So I had to Google Glenn Beck and I thought, oh, okay, cool. So I just went to his generic you know, form, not realizing that Glenn Beck was kind of a big deal and said, you know, submitted into his contact form saying, hey, uh, I'm the guy whose book you've you apparently raved about. I just wanted to say thanks. It's long been a dream of mine to sell a thousand copies of a self-published book. And uh, you know, I, I remember my, one of my friends said, I don't think realized, uh, you realize know, how big a deal this is. Go look at the dashboard. And I saw that I had sold a thousand copies in a day. And then next wow. thing I know, I get an email from Glenn's producer and then the following Friday from Glenn. And then the following Monday, I find myself in in Dallas uh, on the Glenn Beck show to talk about this book. And it ended up, you know, it, it, you know, skyrocketed to the top of the charts and Amazon. Uh, I it was it was crazy. It was one of those sort of surreal moments where you think to yourself, I've lingered in obscurity for you know five years and suddenly I'm a Wall Street Journal bestselling author and uh, this book has sold thousands of copies and so you know I, I think that the thing is that you in your head you're, you're you can you always tell yourself okay whatever you do don't get attached to this don't forget to to remember that you would have been happy with 300 copies or whatever uh, but that's that's easier said than done I think that what happens is it creates this very bizarre sort of expectation that oh I've done this before. Uh, I've got a shot at doing this, and when you know your your books don't live up to that, it's very difficult. I, I think that everybody faces this. Particularly, I think that's the danger of having had an early success is that it creates this, uh, the sense of an unmet expectation with everything that follows. So, my second book, uh, the actual unmistakable book, didn't sell nearly as well. The the audience of one which just came out, the sales have been going kind of slow, but. I, I think yeah. My, my agent told me, she said, you know, this isn't just about one week. It's about the long haul. Like you want something that's going to, you know, sell consistently over time. You know, what Ryan Holiday would call a perennial seller, but it's hard not to think about it. it it's, it's been very stressful and at moments depressed me because we hired a, um, you know, pretty high end marketing firm to help with the launch on this one. And it's just, it, it's been one of those things where it's like that whole Elizabeth Gilbert thing, right? You, you have this Successful book, and then you think about, okay, how am I going to follow this up? Like, nothing else is ever going to live up to this. This is going to be impossible to do again.
0: We're going to take a quick break. Thank you to our sponsor today, Gusto. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. You don't have time to be an expert on things like taxes and regulations, and old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy for you to get it right. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today. You'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash love your work. That is gusto.com slash work. I love having Earth Class Mail as a sponsor. That is Earth Class Mail. You know, like Earth that you're probably on right now. Not first class mail, Earth Class Mail. What EarthClass Mail does is it digitizes your physical mail, it puts it online in a secure portal, and you can check your mail from anywhere in the world, never be tied to a physical location. That is so cool. You can imagine how much I love that. And you never have to waste time taking another trip to the bank to deposit checks. You know, you get checks from clients and other places that you make money. EarthClass Mail's Tech automatically will recognize checks with their check stream service. EarthClass Mail will endorse and deposit checks to your bank account on your business's behalf. You never have to touch it. With Earth Class Mail, you can transform your office into a paperless environment. Scan documents, mail, other important items like invoices, receipts. They're all turned into fully searchable PDFs. Earth Class Mail has set up a special offer just for Love Your Work listeners. So listen up. If you want to get 8% off the monthly plan or 10% off an annual contract, visit earthclassmail.com and use the promo code LOVEYOURWORK when you sign up. That's earthclassmail.com with the promo code LOVEYOURWORK. First of all, I have to say, it's just, I don't know a lot about Glenn Beck. All I know is that he's a very polarizing figure. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, it's just, it, first of all, it's just very surprising and amusing to me that he latched onto your
1: book. What, what was his uh, angle on that? You know, I, I think it was funny. He called it the nonfiction Atlas Shrugged of this generation. I think he liked the fact that it was based on a sort of very independent uh, mindset of focusing on being a creator. And uh, really, I think in a lot of ways, it was a book about permission to go out and do something.
0: I mean, to this thing of, of of a book being a long haul, I mean, that's one of the things that I've found with, you know, I have self-published my most recent uh main main book, you know, after lots of rejections and stuff. And, you know, my my first couple of weeks or first couple of months, things weren't uh weren't picking up big. And so I've just been playing the long game. And it's one of these things that I've learned being doing self-publishing is like, oh gosh, like I talk to people who do traditional publishing sometimes and they're like, I'm not doing this again for 10 years easily because it's so exhausting to go through that launch. Uh, does it feel like that for you? It's been, I haven't been in that position where I'm, uh, traditionally published with a, with a, a big imprint such as,
1: as Penguin. Do do you, do you fantasize about going back to self-publish? Um, so I'll, I'll tell you, it's all the, there are pros and cons to, to each. I think one of the things that working with a publisher does is it really, really levels you up. It forces you to, uh, yeah really I mean they, they push you to create a really high quality product I, I I would be lying to you if I said that my self-published book is as, as is as well written as my traditionally published books far from it despite the fact that it sold more copies uh, I, I think that you're held to a totally different standard because you have a level of accountability it, it it's that's why it takes so long because I think they in the end they want to create something that they're proud of they want something that Ultimately, will be a high quality product. It's a totally different beast in that sense. Uh, but then there are other things that drive you crazy, things that d- take far longer than they should. So you know, basically, you might finish a manuscript in nine months. When you when you self publish, you're kind of like, okay, let me get a cover designed, uh, let me run this through spell check, and let me find an editor to clean it up, and th- that's it. I'll upload to Amazon, I'll upload to Createspace, and you're off to the races. Whereas when you do a traditionally published book there's all this other stuff in between. So what normally would take three months ends up taking anywhere between nine to 12.
0: Right. And you have to put all these different things in place, which are things that I'm still learning myself about book marketing Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, while the book is out. And it's much easier for me to motivate myself to learn those elements. And yeah, maybe in the next go around, maybe I'll put more ducks in a row before my launch. But uh, it, it's been a wonderful learning experience being able to have the instant feedback loop. Whereas with the tri- traditionally published route, it seems like you really got to find that motivation somehow mm-hmm. to do all this work toward this one day that is could be a year in the future.
1: Yeah, it really, really is. And, and that's the balancing act, right? Is that while you're working on it, you can't be thinking about all that. You can't be thinking about how your audience is going to respond. You can't be thinking about how many copies it's going to sell because that inevitably brings the quality of the work down. And at the same time, I, I think that that is probably one of the most difficult things about doing creative work. Of course, you want your work to reach a lot of people. Uh, and at the same time, you can't be attached to that happening.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, you know, we're talking about you having this great breakout success with an early book. Um, and, and we're talking about this new book, Audience of One, in which you're talking about, reclaiming creativity for its own sake, for connecting with uh, your own satisfaction in doing your creative work. Is there any element of this book in which you are writing it uh, to help internalize or instill certain philosophies or ways of doing things in
1: yourself? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I think that's such a a wise observation on your part. It's funny because I think that Every time I've, I've, yeah, I've talked to my sister a few days ago and she asks about it and I said, well, it's not selling as many copies as I want. She said, yeah, but isn't that the whole message of the book? (laughs) And so, yeah, I I think in a lot of ways, uh, somebody told me once we teach what we need to learn. And I think for me that that's largely been what this book has been. It's been incredibly challenging because uh, one, it was, you know, it was the the end of a contract for two books. Uh, I really wanted to do better. It didn't do, you know, my, my first book didn't do as well as I'd hoped. And so uh, despite sort of talking about this idea of an audience of one, I I absolutely have have really struggled with this. I I have a a piece on medium, I think, titled, um, how my addiction to achievement has almost destroyed me. And it it really has. I mean, it's taken me to some pretty bad and and sort of dark places to, to realize that, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this message mainly because I'm the one who probably needs it more than, more than anybody. And, you know, I don't, you don't write a book because you want it to linger in obscurity. And of course you want people to, to read it. Of course you want to, to sell more because I I think that the, the thing that I always say, I've said this in the book is that when you're successful with your creative work, basically what happens is you get the opportunity to keep doing that work. And that's the part that scares me is that it's not as successful as I would like it to be. And it makes me question whether I'm going to be able to keep doing it
0: mm it reminds me of a, a quote that I've heard Jeff Goins share a number of times uh from Walt Disney We don't make movies to make money, we make money so we can to make more make movies more mo-
1: yeah, yeah that's that's precisely that's so true like that is ultimately why you know i like why do we have sponsors in the podcast so we can keep making podcasts
0: yeah and that's yeah that's why you want to sell more books so you can you can keep uh making books and keep selling them right. absolutely yeah. So what are some of the things from Audience of One uh that you have been able to instill in in yourself and what are some of the things that maybe you discovered in the process of writing this book that you might not have discovered had you not uh taken the time and effort to focus on thinking about this this one message of creating for creative for creating sake
1: well, I think that the biggest sort of takeaway and probably the most tactical chapter is the one that we did on the power of your environment, right? And your environment basically includes everything that you hear, see, smell, taste, or touch. That means the information that you consume, uh, the blogs you read, the podcasts you listen to, uh, your physical space, so the desk you work at, the chair you sit in, the lamps on your desk, the lighting, all of that. All of those things have a huge impact, not only on your on your mood, but they also have a big impact on your behavior. And what's interesting is by making all of those things deliberate choices, you actually end up being able to alter behavior without having to consciously think about it. So I'll give you Mm -hmm. one example, and some of this might be familiar to you because you're a writer, but uh, one of the things that I do before I go to sleep at night is I clear everything off of my desk and I put out a pen, I put on a notebook, I put out my noise cancellation headphones in the book I want to read. And that's because the first thing that I do every morning is write. And read. And that makes it much more likely that I'll do it because I've I've created an environment that's conducive to the behavior that I want. Uh, But you can apply that framework to virtually anything. And to me, I think that was one of the most revealing things about this book is, is that it took from took what had started out as an item on a to do list and turned it into a lifelong creative practice, something that I will probably never stop doing
0: hmm So you're, you're thinking about different ways that you can sort of design your environment, mm-hmm. uh, to shape the behavior that you want to have as a creator. Because I think, uh, I mean, like you said, this is, this is something that I do myself. Uh, I, it, I have a strange relationship with writing in that I enjoy it, but at the same time, I find it somewhat painful, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I want to do it and I want to do it so I do it first thing in the morning because that's the time when I'm I'm most likely to 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 get myself to do it and uh that's that's just one way of designing your behavior to uh to shape sorry designing your environment to to shape your behavior uh in a certain way is there another way that you do that
1: Well, I think that there are numerous other ways. I mean, I I also tend not to have a lot of clutter. I fill my my physical space with things that inspire me. So like the wall that I'm looking at right now has frame prints of of some of my favorite unmistakable creative guests with some of the messages that I found the most inspiring. Uh, Stuff like that. And And you know I tend to be very clean, like I think being minimalist is is a way to to keep your mind clear because I want to preserve my my cognitive bandwidth for uh the things that matter most, and when you just have a bunch of you, you physical clutter creates mental chaos in my mind
0: right and and so you were saying that it doesn't sound like the book is going as well as you had wished that it would be going. And so is that the thing that's taking you to the dark places that you're, you're yeah, talking about? Yeah,
1: that is, that is part of it. There's, there's, that's a small part of it. There are a bunch of other things too, personal stuff that's happened over the course of the year, but that, that, it, you know, I think that the the thing that's so hard about this is that you keep telling yourself over and over, don't have any expectations, but it's hard not to. I think, you know, this firsthand because you've published books as well. Uh, and it, it's this, sort of strange paradox that you have to reconcile to say okay I've got to learn how to be okay with this and, and just let it go and and that's that's been my work I think uh, for mm-hmm. for the better part of, of the months following the book launch
0: I mean it's amazing to me that you would even come on the show and say like oh you know this book isn't selling as well as as I thought it would um, I don't know I, I'm thinking back to the beginnings of of my latest book and people would ask me you know how is it going and and my my first reaction, uh, w- was like, I I actually, I'd actually don't know. <laughs> I mean, like I know how many books it's selling, but it, it's, it's, it's so hard to know how well a book is going
1: to do yeah. uh, in, in the beginning. Well, and, and the thing is, I feel like if I, if I told you it was going amazing, I would I would be lying. And it's only been out for a month, so that's another thing to, to think about. But I, I also think it would be irresponsible of me not to be transparent. The good news is that the message of the book is really, really resonating with the people who've read it. Uh, you know, the tweets that have come in, the Instagram posts, uh, a lot of people seem to be really, really appreciating the message. So I think the, the good thing about that is that if something has emotional resonance, it has the potential to keep spreading long after uh, a launch period in which you're aggressively promoting it.
0: Hmm. I mean, going back to your, your Wall Street Journal bestseller success, I I guess I, I don't remember seeing uh, your timeline with like w- whether there was any sort of um, gap between that and, and your next book. Yeah, did there was, that, it was a big gap. Did you do any, creating any anxiety for you, like, you know, big shoes
1: to fill being your own? Oh yeah, uh, of course, no, no question about it. I, the reason I got my book deal at Penguin was because of the fact that my self-published book had been a big success. So it, just imagine going in with the, the fact that your book deal was contingent on this, uh, and the idea is that, okay, this guy moved 15,000 copies, probably he could do it again.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. And I, I guess I had a, a somewhat similar experience in that my first book was successful, but it was you know completely niche, and so I ended up in a completely different different genre. But it actually ended up taking me quite a while to even realize like how lucky I got uh, the first time around And, and that to, to, to make that sort of thing happen again, that I was going to have to like clean the slate and, and in a way start over. Like it was for myself, I, it, it really, I think it really brought my head into places that were a detriment to, to my work. Uh, And then it took me a while to get back to, 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 To
1: creating for creating's sake. That's that is that is one of the hardest things to do. I think it's it's actually sometimes worse after you've been successful because of the fact that you have these expectations, whereas if you had never been successful like that in the first place, then you have no idea what you're missing. I want to go back to what you were saying about, uh, being in
0: those interviews early on and, and wanting to, and now thinking I probably should have just said, oh, fuck this. I don't really, uh, want to work. There's work here, work with this, um, work at this job. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, and when I think back to those early days of trying to be in, uh, your typical career where you go get, a uh, you go to an interview and you go get a job and you 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 hold that job for a while. I always didn't real, realize at the time, but there was sort of a disconnect in that I had a, a wide variety of of interests and I wanted to figure out and do my own things. And every job I, I was looking at, it, it, they kind of wanted you to do some very specialized kind of thing. And so very it took me a very long time to realize that it it wasn't a a fit for me in the first place. Is that something that uh, you've discovered along the way? I mean, you were saying that you felt like you didn't have a choice, but was it that you, it was just the wrong fit for you to begin with? Yeah,
1: I absolutely think it was just the wrong fit to begin with, because I think when you mismatch talent and environment, it's easy to believe that you don't uh, have any talent. And it's easy for somebody who runs the environment to believe that the person is is problematic, but usually it's just a mismatch. Mm-hmm. Did it take you a while to figure that out? Yeah, I did. It took me a really long time. So I, I think that if somebody put me in a role where I was doing creative work, I would probably thrive.
0: Well, it's funny you were saying that you would be a great asset to a company now, but I'm assuming that I'm assuming that you wouldn't want to have a day job. Myself personally, I have had nightmares. That I'm being offered like a half a million dollar salary somewhere, <laughs> which is a strange nightmare to have. Because in 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 the dream, I'm I'm like really torn. I'm like I don't know. Half a million dollars is a lot every year, but I don't think I can stop doing what I'm doing.
1: Yeah, I I you know I mean I think if I, if I were offered half a million dollars, I would have a serious conflict. Like I would I would have to give some serious thought to doing that. Um, I'd be lying if I said that I, I wouldn't think about it, but. That being said, yeah, I probably wouldn't want a job. I mean, I've gotten, after you get used to sort of living a certain way for such a long time, you kind of get conditioned into Mm -hmm. into the way that you are. Uh, I I have a friend who has a really interesting philosophy as a photographer and his whole uh, approach to life is he doesn't have goals. He only has three goals, which are to go interesting places, meet interesting people and do interesting things.
0: Is this Tynan?
1: No, it's not.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's funny. He was he was recently on the podcast. Sounds like somebody who would have uh, a similar yeah uh, a, a similar philosophy d- to that. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting that through living this life of following your own curiosity and and creating what is interesting to you, which is something that both of us have been doing for the last decade or so at, at least. It's interesting that you develop this skill stack that could potentially be very valuable uh, in in the rest of the world, yet nothing that we did before really prepared, f- prepared us for that. And I feel like this is a lot of what you're talking about in Audience of One is developing this kind of skill set uh, that nobody's going to teach you, that you have to discover yourself. It, it, is that part of the message of the book?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I think that the thing is that there is great value to this; that it, it can translate to other parts of your life in unexpected ways. I didn't end up here with some sort of grand plan. This a lot of this was largely by by accident, and I think that it's been a very fortunate accident. But you know, there is so many parts of this that you couldn't have sat down and drawn a plan for. I mean, this career didn't even exist when I was leaving business school.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, and and now you've interviewed how many hundreds of. Creators, have you interviewed now? Ah, uh, more than seven hundred. More than seven hundred. What are the, some of the main things that you've learned doing so many of those interviews?
1: Well, I think that that the the biggest thing that's interesting is is that we tend to think that people who are incredibly skilled or you know successful in, in some sort of capacity that that society considers successful are are superhuman and that they don't have flaws or that they're not people who struggle, but they're, they're just like everybody else. Uh, I I think that they also have a real commitment to what they want to do. And that's often, uh, in conflict with the sort of the world around them there. I'll tell you the the one sort of common pattern, I think between every single person that I've interviewed, every single person who's done something extraordinary is that they're able to either overcome or, uh, completely ignore their social programming. So Mm -hmm. they don't let Other people's value systems and other people's choices dictate their actions.
0: Were there any um, major conversations that you had that gave you particular paradigm shifts?
1: Wow. Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them, but I I would say probably the one that I had with uh, a Harvard neuroscientist named Srini Pillay, who's probably one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet. I I think that uh, talking to him uh, just he kind of breaks down goals in a way that makes you understand a lot of your own behavior. But another one that uh, is not nearly as cerebral or not as logical is Bob Goff. Uh, it, you know, we're talking about a lot of very emotional things. We're talking about love. We're talking about heartbreak. We're talking about things that hurt. And one of the things that struck me about what he said is that everybody is just doing the best they can with what we have. And of course, people are going to hurt us. Chances are that I've hurt people without intending to. And you know, the people who have hurt me have, have probably not... Started out with the intention of hurting hurting me. I mean, it just, it's kind of what happens. Nobody is, I I think there are very few people who walk the world with genuine malicious intent. Uh, It just Mm -hmm. happens because of of circumstance or situations.
0: And has that affected the way that you live in some way?
1: Well, it's affected the way that I've chosen to process. things that have hurt me and, and people that I have felt resentment towards. And, and it's, it's made me sort of work harder at letting go whatever resentment I might have felt to some of these people.
0: Right. Is there something that you tell yourself, some sort of an internal mantra when you do find your, catch yourself uh, feeling resentment towards somebody?
1: Well, uh, one, I I recognize that resentment is a form of energy and it's an energy that I'll carry into other interactions. And when I do resent somebody from the past, I'm basically letting the past dictate the future.
0: Right, right. And so it, and just by telling yourself that, are you, is, is, are you able to uh, find
1: your way out of it? <laughs> not always. Uh, not always. I, I think that that's the other thing with, with the, the human brain, right? Is that we, we really love the idea that we can control everything that it's thinking, but these thoughts just flow sometimes. And sometimes, no, I can't get my way out of it. Sometimes I, I, I can't stop and it's, it's frustrating. Uh, but I also at moments recognize that, okay, these are just thoughts. They're not necessarily real.
0: Yeah. Sometimes the logical approach to it, you know, breaking it down is like, oh, there is no reason for me to worry about uh, this medical test that I'm going to get results for in a week because uh, there's nothing I can do about it now. And I might end up worrying for nothing. And even if there is a problem, uh, it will still be energy wasted. Like You can tell yourself that logically. Yeah. Um, but then actually like reducing the worry in some way uh, or reducing any sort of negative em- emotion can can be tricky at, at times. So anyway, Srini Rao, thank you so much for being on on the show. I, I really, high, really highly recommend everybody go out and get the book, uh, Audience of One. It's got a great message in there about reclaiming creativity for its own sake. Listen to The Unmistakable Creative. Srini has a ton of of amazing interviews on there with uh, bank robbers and neuroscientists and, and creators. We were just saying creators earlier, but uh, you, you've interviewed all sorts of people on there, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. Bank robbers, drug dealers, performance psychologists, authors, entrepreneurs, and billionaires. Uh,
0: awesome. All right, Srini, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Is Love Your Work helping you find the intersection on your love and money Venn diagram? Does it bring you the inspiration and motivation to make you into the person that you want to be? If so, we, together, you and I, can make this the show that we want it to be. I'm trying to make a nourishing and thoughtful show, and I could use your help with that. Please donate to the show. Just a coffee a month will help support the hosting and production of this show. Just a coffee a month will help spread Love Your Works message helping more people live a balanced life with a healthy definition of success. To donate, visit our Patreon page at Katavi.net slash donate. Patreon is a platform that lets you support creators like me, vote with your dollars, and keep Love Your Work going at katavi.net slash donate. As a thank you, you'll get early access, bonus content, and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at kadavy.net slash donate. That's kadavy.net slash donate. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, such as mini sponsor Roxana Maynard of Agility Alchemist at agilityalchemist.com, and top supporters such as Jeffrey Mason and Vitas Pankaviches. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Kadavi. The theme music for this show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production
1: of. Kadavy, Inc.,